Got an idea for a short film? Win a share of $1 million in cash with My Road Reel. Visit MyRoadReel.com for more info. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayden. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of August 1st, 2020. Otherwise known as COVID lockdown week 19 in the United States and COVID reopening like week 20 in, you know... New Zealand or wherever else I see pictures of people without masks. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. I'm here with writer Michelle De La Tour. Happy Emmy nomination day, everybody. I've got a little test for everybody. At the end of this episode, if you can repeat back the words good, bad, ugly, carry, jaws, we'll explain to you what it means. We're going to be listening to see if you guys can remember good, bad, ugly, carry, jaws. This week... On the podcast, first up, Emmy nomination day. Second up, what exactly does it mean that the new Chris Nolan movie is going to be shown abroad before it's shown domestically? Third, the Sony A7S III, the camera Sony said they were not going to make, is here. I'm excited. Many are disappointed. We're going to talk about why. In tech news, we have a possible contender for the Mandotanium. Nice. little reward there for longtime listeners. And we're going to wrap that all up with a return to good, bad, ugly, Carrie Jaws. All right. Our first story this week, the Emmy nominations for 2020 are out. Woo. The 2020 Emmy nominations came out. Apparently, there's still a show happening in September. I don't think that's an in-person show, but somehow Jimmy Kimmel is still producing a show, so we still have something to watch, hooray, in September. There's tons of things nominated for Emmys. We're not going to list them all, but you can head over to No Film School. We have a whole list up. Um, But, you know, as as what TV is has changed, and there's so many more channels and streamers and other platforms that we'll get to in a moment, uh, it's just a massive thing. So check out the list and see what's on there. But now let's get some of your takes. One of the ones I wanted to highlight, because we've talked about Lynn Shelton on this podcast, was Lynn got a posthumous nomination for her episode of Little Fires Everywhere, which was, I think, the finale, which felt to be this kind of beautiful (laughs) circle, if you will. If you watch the broadcast this morning, so Leslie Jones came on and, and did all the big award categories. I say big award categories. I'm referring to the lead actor in a drama series and all that stuff. If you tucked away, you know, in the PDF of all of those awards, which we'll link to on nofilmschool.com, there is a couple of fun story and takeaways. And this one felt really meaningful to me was the director nom for Lynn Shelton's episode of Little Fires Everywhere. So we are thinking of you, Lynn, today and congratulations on that. She joins a stacked field of of competitors there, but it felt like a really nice call out. Um, The other one, which... George alluded to is that Quibi, the thing we keep talking about on this podcast and question, received 10 Emmy nominations today. Almost all of them are in the acting for short form categories. So technically, Quibi has more nominations this year than Showtime. Which is crazy. Which is I crazy. Mean, and it, and it, but it also means like... Uh, well, I don't know what it means. What I think about exactly. it is that <laughs> what I think about it is that that there is if the industry has ways to celebrate the stuff that a platform like Quibi does like this, it could potentially bring some attention to what's being done on Quibi and being done in short form in general. And I think that even forgetting all the Quibi stuff of which there's a great deal, it's kind of cool to think about attention going to performance and shorts or, you know, short episodic content on the internet that has a place to live and get another shot at breaking through the noise. I mean, I have to say, as much as I have mocked Quibi, my mocking of Quibi has not actually been about inherent issues in the content. Like a couple of the shows I saw, I was like, oh, I could watch this in 10 minute chunks. My my criticisms of Quibi have been um, their uh, strategies for how they rolled these things out, where you could only watch it on the app for so long, and it was so 
scattershot where they were like, we're going to try and conquer like 90 things all at once. We're going to have talk shows and we're going to have reality shows and we're going to have, and it's like, it just seemed scattershot to me. However, the one thing that never seemed scattershot was their narrative production always went for really high end people, right? Guillermo del Toro had a show, Spielberg had a show. So am I surprised that a whole bunch of A-listers given a free range budget to make interesting shows were able to craft really interesting performances? Not at all. I mean, I think that was like really smart. What I wonder is if this might lead to a bump for some of those shows for Quibi and if they might've wasted money on all of those other shows. Cause there's like a billion of them mm. that, you know, including the one, uh, where they shoot food at people and then you like have to eat the food off the table and then try and recreate the dish. Cause it was shot at you. And it's like, you know, I like it's a, it's wait, that it's didn't get nominated for an show? Emmy. I know that is a show on Quibi. It's like food, food gun or something. Um, it literally, yeah. So I, I actually, I'm kind of, I'm psyched that Quibi got some nominations. There are some, Big name talents that got nominated for an Emmy from Quibi, and there are some, I would say, newer talents that were that were newly discovered either on the platform or at least newly discovered to me. So a little bit of a mixture of both of the of of established talent and new talent. Good on Quibi for giving us a mix of Lawrence Fishburne and Andrew Kendrick, but also some names we don't recognize and giving them the opportunity to get nominations and things. And I think that that's really exciting. And so those are the things that I'm excited about Quibi. I'm going to continue to mock Quibi for like business strategy decisions on their rollout as opposed to mocking content. Also, Wes Lowry has a show on Quibi and it's great. So, you know, there's some good stuff on Quibi. I'm not a big awards show person. I'm not a fan of the concept and I don't think that they're useful, but uh, I'm a grouch. And I think that the interesting thing about they them potentially is that they bring a lot of attention to a lot of, like you said, maybe things people haven't seen or outside their niche. As I look down the list of stuff and the list, the full list is massive. There are so many categories. There's a couple things I wanted to ask. One, when you guys just look at the big nominations, have you watched all of these shows or have you watched 50% of them? I have not. You know, it's my job in part to be up to date on what's happening in the world of entertainment. So, but it's hard to watch that much stuff. There's so much stuff. And I find it a little like, I'm not opposed to the the fact that creating all these categories means like we'll hear about more shows and from a PR standpoint, it, it works for them. It works for us like a site where we can talk to some of these craftspeople and, and promote the stuff, but also learn more about the process. But I feel like things like saying uh, separating limited series from drama and comedy is a little much because when do they decide it's a limited series? In some of these cases, like I think they do, they say it's a limited series until they get everybody to do, to agree to do season two. And then like, I just feel like there are certain things here that it's, that this thing is a little too big and unwieldy and it's almost hard to be honest, for anyone to take it all in and say, like, coming full circle to where I started with this rant, maybe it's nice that it's such a long list of stuff you could explore, right? It is worth exploring. There are there are a lot of categories. I assume some of the categories, right, don't get kind of airplay during the ceremony. But it is worth diving into the whole list just to see categories that you might not have known existed. Things have feel like they have multiple or, or different categories now. So we just talked about Quibi, like 10 minute episode start falls into short form, but what if they decided to do a little bit longer content, right? And then it becomes a documentary series. Does that get put in someplace else when it gets nominated for nom- or next time? It's, there's going to be, and I think we'll see this now too, because of all the movies that are going to come out on demand or they're going to come out on platforms. Like what does it mean when they're out on platform? So Apollo 11, for example, has a nomination for an Emmy, but was also on the shortlist as a documentary for the Oscars. So it's got this kind of hybrid. Uh, it also has a nod, I'm just going to point this out, um, which I love. Apollo 11 has a nod for um, cinematography, but it also has a nod f- for cinematography for Buzz Aldrin because his footage was used huh, in Apollo 11, which cool. I loved. That's um, really cool. That's a nice Wait, little call I've, out there. I really hope he wins because he's just amazing. Yeah. We, we've all seen the video of, of Buzz Aldrin punching a guy who yeah. thinks the moon landing is fake, right? <laughs> yeah. Which, like, um, total, can, su- total support. 
I, I think like in general, we wouldn't talk, we shouldn't go on too long about the Emmys for how it's functional for the filmmaker, I guess I would say. Yes. One way to, to kind of gear it towards that is to say, like, there's a lot of stuff you could watch that, and this list, it will give you a, a bit, you might not know about a lot of the things that are being celebrated in the community. So this, there could be some great stuff for you to see. The other thing is um, that I think is just an interesting aside. Uh, there's a category here that says like outstanding lead actor in a limited series or TV movie. And I know they must have strict definitions, but what even is a TV movie anymore? Like it must be like it was made specifically for a streamer, but that then like, that's the whole, like a Netflix movie, like the Irishman has to have a limited release. So it's not a TV movie. Was that like, do you know what I'm talking about? It's just kidding. I think the definition of a TV movie has to be a very consumable moral message targeted at (laughs) eight to 14 year olds. Like that really is it. Like if you don't learn at the end, why drugs are bad? I don't think it counts as a TV movie. Hallmark so, too. It's not a Hallmark, Hallmark Christmas yes, movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hard because in from our era, TV movie meant something completely different. Like that little phrase has such a con- powerful connotation. All right. Moving on to a movie that wanted to be the definitive theatrical movie of the year. And for some people might end up being a TV movie. Tenet today announced that it is actually settled on a release date. And it's going to go for an interesting strategy where it's going to release everywhere except the United States in August. Obviously, this goes without saying, many other countries handled the COVID pandemic well. Uh, New Zealand is down to one or two cases. Obviously, it's an island country. It's different. But France and Germany have done much better jobs at managing the pandemic. America has not managed their pandemic properly. That is not a controversial statement. And as such, the... um, Studio behind Tenet has decided that they want butts and seats for Tenet in as much of the world as they can do. And that's going to be everybody but the United States. What's interesting about this, there's like two things about this. First off, it's so important to remember that the age of the simultaneous international release isn't even 20 years old yet. In the 90s, um, you had to have physical prints of movies. And so you wouldn't want to make, I mean, even to do a 3,000 screen release in North America, you had to make so many prints. And then a lot of times you'd like ship those prints around the world or you'd make separate prints for different markets. But doing that all at once was prohibitively expensive and kind of pointless. And you also wanted like the marketing buzz of like, oh, that was a hit in America. And now we're getting it in Germany and now we're getting it in in India. And it wasn't until, and I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of the Raimi Spider-Men, one, two, or three. And they did a simultaneous international, I think it was 6,000 screens all around the globe all at once. And it was sort of big news in the industry because um, they did it to fight piracy is what was happening is it would open in America first or it would open in some other market first. And then it would get really easy to pirate because people would sneak into the movie theater with you know, the burgeoning digital cameras of the day, they'd bring their XL1 in, or probably not an XL1, that's kind of big, but they'd bring a little handy cam in and shoot it and make dubs or whatever, whatever piracy I love a sh- like. shout out to the XL1 for anyone who yeah. remembers it. And so, you know, we're only in 18 years of the the biggest tentpole movie releases everywhere on earth at once. Like that's a new phenomenon. That's not something. And that quickly, that also became easier once we switched from film prints to digital release with Avatar in 2009. Because then you didn't have to make the 6,000 prints. You just had to make 6,000 copies of the DCP and digital copies are obviously easier. So it's sort of an interesting thing to remember that like release patterns are always changing. I was going to say, it's interesting that we've like, as far as the topic of Tenant and what's happening with Tenant, I don't really have much more to say anymore. But I do find this avenue you've carved out about like release strategy and the history of releases and why they've changed really interesting. Um it's funny when when you talk about it and remind us all that it was partly because so many prints had to be made and prints were a tangible thing. It was like creating something, putting it on celluloid. It wasn't like a, you know, instant instantly easy duplicate process. And it's funny because I remember you would often see it so in a revival house, it used to be that someone would have an old print. So like the way you would see say like vertigo might be that it's an old print that's been in circulation for a long time and it's all scratched up and like retaped together. And a lot of movies that I saw the first time that were like classic movies and like a rerun at New Beverly or whatever, pre-Quentin Tarantino owning it, were like in horrible shape. 
<laughs> because they were just like, it's an old print of Raiders of the Lost Ark because Lucasfilm won't make any more or 20th Century Fox. Won't. So I've seen some of these movies in theaters where later I would see like this crisp, clean HD version and think, oh, that, you know, it looks a lot better and they, they fixed the color and it's not all faded anymore. But it's just fascinating to me how in just a light, like half a lifetime or whatever, it, we've moved so far past that, that it's not a tangible product with like a lifespan that like if you went to Europe in the late 90s, if you were in France, you were not going to see any of the movies out. They didn't get anything yet. They were always waiting for out, for our run to get to them. Um, and it influences so much culturally. Riffing on the New Beverly Prince, and we'll bring this back around to Tenet, I promise. Riffing on the New Beverly Prince, uh, one thing a lot of people don't know about film prints is they're not all the same color. So one thing that happens is uh, film prints are made by a light bulb shining through a inner negative onto a release print. And film prints are, you know, uh, six, seven, uh, however many thousands of feet long they are. They're several thousand feet long. And over the course of making several prints, the bulb will fade. And so in the lab, they always kept the prints made together at the same time. So like real one, two, three, four, and five were always made around the same time of day. You wouldn't make all your real ones and then all your real twos and then all your real threes because the color would be different as the bulb fades over time. And there were people who were checking it all the time to make sure the bulb color would stay the same, but it would still fade subtly. So prints sort of have their own color balance to them, which you naturally settle into and get used to and you don't notice. But there were a couple movies at the New Beverly I used to see where they clearly had a mixed print where like reels one, three, five, and seven were one color shade. And then reels like two, four, and six were a different. And every time there was a real changeover, you could tell you were like, that's not, that doesn't match the theme before. <laughs> I, I and, know exactly what you're talking. I remember seeing some like older black and white ones where a real change would be like an earthquake, basically. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. Like it changed, the sound changed, like the chairs shook, like yeah. the whole world rumbled. <laughs> <laughs> because clearly at one point somebody lost a couple of reels and then they bought another print and they picked whichever one was the best. And it sort of works. And if you're not a nerd, you wouldn't notice, but I'm like 95% sure in Inglorious Bastards, digital Tar Quentin Tarantino did this deliberately. There's a real changeover with a color cast shift in Inglorious Bastards where I'm like, that's on purpose. That's oh, because that's of New Beverly. Like I'm pretty cool. sure, but bring that back all around to tenant. What's interesting about this is also is that, you know, uh, Chris Nolan is someone who really obsesses about showing film prints wherever possible. And so Tenet is sort of one an, an interesting throwback in release strategies in that it's going to be on, I don't know if there, it's going to be on thousands of cinema screens because it's going to primarily show digitally because that is most cinemas these days, but it's going to be on hundreds of cinema screens worldwide. And it is really interesting to think about the whole logistics process of managing all that. And also to remember that even internationally, where theaters, you know, the theaters in Sweden never closed, although Sweden has its own problems and a, a higher death rate. But even the countries where the theaters reopened, it's still half seats. It, uh, it's still social distancing. You're supposed to go in with a pod and then have a group, between, like space between you and other pods. So even if it opens in every territory but the United States, the number, like, the number of butts and seats are still going to be much smaller. It is a, it's an interesting decision to me that they're not waiting for a vaccine. Like there's a, there's a point in which, you know, James Cameron has that great line. No one ever walked out of a movie theater saying at least it opened on time, which was like his response to people giving him shit for how long Titanic took. But like many big blockbusters in the olden days used to just like push to another year. Like there were times where it was like, yeah. is Titanic yeah. coming out this year or next year or the year after? And Cameron was like, nope, not going, not coming out till it's done. And then it was Titanic. And I wonder what math was involved because I wonder, my guess is that Chris Nolan would rather wait till next summer and have every butt in every seat filled with a butt. And it's an interesting thing to to see them make this August decision. I'm a little surprised by it. I got to admit. I mean, I just I don't know the economics at Warner Brothers. That's the distributor on this one, but I the studio on this one. But I assume that these th this is a lot of money that went out the door, and it's been a rough year, and they want to recoup or start recouping. You're 100% right. If it were just Tenet, they'd probably wait. The fact that Tenet is their best shot at getting cash in the door is the decision. You're totally right. Good insight. It is 100%. They just need any revenue. All right. Moving on to another nerdy subject. 
Sony has finally released the A7S III. Why is this big news to filmmakers? Well, first off, because we all kind of expected it two years ago. And in fact, one of the No Film School writers talked to Sony two years ago at NEB, and they were like, no, no A7S III? And they were like, no, we actually feel like the A7R, I mean, no, the A7 III covers everything we would have done with that, and we're content. There's not an A7S III coming, which was like a very bold thing for a Sony rep to say. Um, the Sony A7 line really revolutionized full-frame mirrorless in 2014 when it came out. It's full-frame sensorless, but it's a mirrorless camera, which makes it really easy to adapt it to various lenses, like the PL mount lenses filmmakers love, or or Sony, or a Canon EF, or all sorts of lens adapters can be made really easily. It's a phenomenal low-light camera. Um, the A7S II was really the dominant filmmaker one. Shot 4K, amazing low-light, like amazing in all of these things. And like the Sony A7S II was very very popular. I'm a big fan of this decision, but they made a controversial decision. They kept it 4K. That's like eight less Ks than the other ones. <laughs> I know. And how many Ks do you need? Literally, you could take an like, could I get one of those? Thi- I could get one of those like things that smushes a Sony R5 together with an A7S3, and I take the 8Ks and the 4Ks and add them up to the 12Ks. Is that how this works? <laughs> yes. That's algebra right there. We figured it out. Um, so the A7S3 stuck with 4K. I think this is brilliant. I, To be clear, I think the 12K, um, Blackmagic did is brilliant because I really like that they did clear stencils. I think that's going to give you great low light response. It's a whole new sensor, but it's a $10,000 camera and it needs a whole ecosystem. It has to have its own Blackmagic RAW and Resolve and the whole thing has to work together. If Sony didn't want to reinvent the wheel, which they didn't, stuffing in more Ks is not the only way to improve a camera. And what they really focused on is much faster sensor readout times, which is going to give you lower rolling shutter artifacts, which is great. Rolling shutter artifacts are like when you move the camera in a certain way and your image looks jello-y, you need a fast sensor to fix that. So this sensor, this processor is eight times faster than the old one. They also focused on larger photo sites for better low light. And you're thinking, well, but the A7S2 was already great low light. Well, you can always be better low light. The other perk of good low light. Can you just tell me though, the bet, how it goes from great to better in this specific instance? Well, so as a photo site gets bigger, it's each individual photo site on a sensor is like a bucket in the rain. So the bigger your bucket is in the rain, the more raindrops it gets. So if there's only a tiny little bit of rain falling and I have like a cup out there in the rain, a raindrop might not even fall in the cup. It might not even respond to that. Whereas if I have a bucket out there in the rain, it's going to, it might get four or five raindrops in it. So it's the same way if I'm collecting, if there's not a lot of light photons out there, but I have a bigger photo site, it's into a better shot of collecting them and getting a usable signal out of them. So I can reproduce an image. So so it went from having enough buckets to collect some rain in the low light situation, mixing metaphors, but now it has even more. It, it has bigger buckets. So okay, it's okay. larger photo sites. So previously it's like sitting a cup out in the rain. Now it's like sitting a bucket out in the rain. I don't know if the size difference equates there, but it's because it's bigger photo sites. But it should less be an appreciable, an appreciable yeah. difference. Yeah. And this is exciting, not because we all want to go shoot outside in the forest at night with no lights. I mean, I like lighting scenes. Lighting scenes is fun. But the reason why this is particularly exciting is slow-mo. Slow-mo for me is the real competition space in these cameras these days. And what everyone forgets about slow-mo, I have a DP buddy who used to, whenever he'd book a slow-mo, he'd book a job and the producers would be like, hey, can this camera shoot slow-mo? And he's like, the real question is, can you afford to light slow-mo? And everyone forgets when you're getting up there to 60 frames a second or 120 frames per second or 240 frames per second, you need way more light because the sensor is not exposed to light for as long. And so the big budget item is never getting slow-mo in the camera. The big budget item is having enough light to get usable exposure when you're shooting slow-mo. So what's exciting to me about this camera is we're seeing 4K 120 frames per second, but we're seeing it from a camera that's really bragging about their low light sensitivity issues, um, uh, sensitivity. So, you know, the old A7S II, you could shoot usable images at 5,000 ISO. If this is a noticeably better image at 5,000 ISO, and I have to go to 5,000 ISO to get a usable image shooting slow-mo, this could be a really killer dynamite combination for that whole market. Because slow-mo is a thing that a lot of people, you know, there's, we see more and more of it all the time. I think it's a good thing for these cameras to be competing on. And I'm really excited about that. Is the knock against it the criticism from the community or the disappointment that 
It's where's just more K's. True. I wanted right, more okay. K's. Can and I have more so, K's please? <laughs> so if you guys are thinking about like you guys, anybody, if you're thinking about shooting and you, this is out there, we know the EOS R5 is out there and we know that black magic is out there, but that's in a different yeah. price range. What, what are mm-hmm. the reasons? What are the, what are the, I mean, you just said, I guess, low light, slow-mo. Is there anything else that makes this preferable to that Canon that we just saw? It also has a much wider lens selection. Sony's been working on their E-series lenses for several, several years now. So there's a really wide selection. Now, with both these cameras, you can use an adapter for all your great cinema glass and all that. But like, if you're looking for native, um, the other thing, I mean, the other place these cameras are really going to be competing is autofocus. Um, I know it still feels weird to say it aloud, but like, Autofocus is a big deal in the motion picture market because it's getting good enough that you can actually use it, which we couldn't five years ago. And you're shooting doc style, you're shooting escape video, you're shooting anything like that. Autofocus is going to be a big part of your life. And Sony's autofocus is amazing. They're bragging a lot about the autofocus features in this camera. I mean, this feels like Apple used to do this thing where every other OS release was like, this OS release has new features. And the next OS release would be like, there's not a lot of cool features, but we fixed a lot of bugs. And those were always the stable ones, some of which people still run like seven years later. This feels like one of those releases where they're like, hey, guys, it's the exact same resolution, but we made it all better. You're going to have better color and better autofocus and better low light. And and every other little thing's going to be better. And, and the resolution's the same. And frankly, 4K is so much resolution. I work at the school where I teach on a 20-foot 4K screen. I Every semester, I do this thing where I show properly mastered, 1080 footage on a proper 1080 time uh, pipeline with a 4k as the final step, but a pretty good up res and then 4k footage. And I switch back and forth and no one can tell the difference. 4k is so much resolution already. Are you, do you shoot a lot of Sony, Michelle? I shoot Sony stills, which is basically what I thought was the best kind of stills camera under a thousand dollars across the gamut. Sony and Canon and Nikon. But we shoot, I've shot music, we have worked with people that shoot music videos on Sony. I think that's what Sony, you know, everyone I knew that was using Sony was always in, in low light situations. So music videos, or we use them in classrooms. They responded really well to when the lights were off and the projector was on. And I really think they doubled down on what Ooh. they knew people were using it for, right? Was people were excited to bring it out to, you know, astrophotography, they're excited to bring out to music videos. I think they just doubled down on what they knew people were using it for. I'm curious, you know, this is a place where we've talked about the Z7. It's got a larger megapixel count. So if you wanted to use it for stills, you could. I could have, I don't think that the low light comparison, it would be even close, but the Z7 is cheaper. Also, what I like about it is it will shoot for a long time without pausing again they took what they knew people were already using it for music video shoots and low light situations slow motion and just up the ante a little bit i have read and i kind of agree the price feels at 3500 for the body feels a little steep really what i've come to understand with a lot of these sony models and really all the models is what are you shooting and what's the best tool for the job i don't i don't think we're at yet at a point where we have one camera that will solve all of the things right? One camera to shoot stills and a camera to shoot low light and a camera to shoot slow-mo. There isn't that one yet. And so it still is to me back to, okay, so what are we shooting and what's the best tool for the job? I think, yeah, I would say, I always want to say, so is it gonna, is this one or this one? Let's have a shootout. Let's decide. And those are interesting things to do for the website, for you no know, film school, They're interesting things to compare and contrast. But I think that it's like, I used to like the question of, all right, I'm going to make an indie feature. Which one should I buy? And I think I've learned by asking Charles that question enough times that the answer is like, where are you shooting? What kind of image do you need? What kind of light are you going to be getting? Like, what kind of, like, is it going to be mostly close-ups, faces, or skin tones? Is it going to be big exteriors? Like, there's so many questions that then make that decision easier um, that you can't just say, which one's the best camera? (laughs) <laughs> like it's yeah. like say there's not a, yeah. and that's great right it's it's a lovely situation because it means there's a lot of valuable options for different needs can i give one more shout out and first off i want to say for the record i'm like a 20 year sony hater ask any of my students and i'm usually trashing sony and 
usually it's because of color science and I actually feel like they've gotten a lot better in color science in the last couple of years. So maybe I'm being more generous with Sony Venice is looking nice and, and uh, Sony FX nine actually looks quite nice as well. And mm-hmm. maybe the color will be good. There's another thing I want to praise. I can't believe I just a whole segment about all sorts of being impressed with Sony. There's another thing they did with this camera that I think deserves praise, which is on the mm. day of its rollout, external raw was supported by Atomos. And I'm going to say that's on Sony, not on Atomos. Cause every time I talk to Atomos, they're always like, we're ready. Anybody wants to work with us. We're ready. Cause that's all they do is work with people. So whenever you hear of like, Oh, it took about six months to be able to do external raw from this camera or that camera. I won't name what cameras they are, but we all know all of the other brands of cameras um, or a year. Sometimes it takes, I never hold that on Atomos. There's other stuff with Atomos that like sometimes like they still don't support Airy Raw, which they promised they would at NAB 2015. And I'm waiting, Atomos, I'm waiting for T-Link. I know it's never going to come. But this is the one time where it's like on the day of the announcement, Atomos was like, oh, and you can do external Raw up to 4K60. And uh, I think they, I think the limitation, I don't think Atomos ever does beyond 4K60. Uh, I don't think that they have units that do 4K 120 yet. So I was really impressed with that. And that speaks to Sony engaging with Atomos during the development process. And so I think that's pretty neat. This podcast is sponsored by My Road Reel, the world's largest short film competition. Enter My Road Reel before October 7th for a chance to win a share of $1 million in cash, plus heaps of awesome prizes and filmmaking gear. That's right, $1 million in cash, including a $200,000 major prize. Head to MyRoadReel.com for more info. My Road Reel is brought to you by Rode Microphones. Our top tech news story this week is the coming, perhaps, of the Mandotanium. So if you don't remember what the Mandotanium is, it's because you haven't been listening to the podcast diligently enough and taking enough notes. <laughs> so go back and start over right now. <laughs> uh, if you guys all remember, there was this show called The Mandalorian. Which got nominated for a drama Emmy today. Snuck Boom. in there. One of the things that made the show famous, one of the many things for film nerds, I don't know if normal people talked about this, but we talked about it in film nerdery, was um, the fact that it was shot against LED walls using something called virtual production. And so instead of shooting against a green screen where you can't see what's going to be comped in behind you until later, they literally shot live. They have these massive LED walls and they were using a gaming engine and they have these big elaborate digital sets built. And what's great about that is you can see on set what it's going to look like. The actors can see, so they're enveloped in the environment. They can look around and they can sort of get a sense of what's going on. They can interact differently with like knowing where windows are going to be and all of that stuff. And I have to say, I've only seen one episode of The Mandalorian, but I was pretty impressed. I mean, there were a couple shots where I was like, that's clearly just a set with a VR wall. But like 99% of the time, I was like lost in the world. And then they cast Brian Posehn, which is always fun. For the most part, it really, really worked. It's incredibly impressive. And it cost them like $100 million to build the set because it's like the most sophisticated thing in the world. We've been joking on this podcast for a while that eventually there's going to be an indie film version of that technology. And I've been pitching that someone needs to open a studio in LA called the Mandatanium, named after the Mandalorian, and this thing called the Entertainium, which I think is now closed, but it was a an old studio that used to be in LA that had a whole bunch of pre-built sets on it. And so like you needed a locker room, you could book a locker room and all the showers worked and stuff, and that should tell you everything you need to know about the kind of films that would <laughs> often also be shooting at the Entertainium when you were not shooting at the Entertainium. Um so, you know. The Entertainium was a place where independent low budget shoots went and the man, the Mandotanium could be the same. So I was really excited when I uh, heard about new technology that just came out. There's a company called AR wall in Burbank and they are releasing the ARFX home studio. It's $9,500. It's not cheap, cheap, but $9,500 for what it does is kind of impressive. Hey, and it's it is, less, it's it can, less than the 12 K camera, right? <laughs> it's less than the 12 K camera. Yeah. So it's just, the computer and a puck for your camera and the software, but you plug this computer into a monitor and it will do. And then you put a puck on your camera and you need the puck on the camera so that uh, the computer can tell where the camera is and it can redraw the digital screen based on the camera. So as you get closer to the screen, it changes what's on the screen. As you pan around, it changes what's on the screen. So it needs that data, but all of that comes together. $9,500. I did a demo. I like, 
called into a virtual Zoom demo with the company. And I was pretty impressed for $9,500, the ability to, it runs on the Unreal Gaming Engine. You can, you know, that it comes with a whole bunch of pre-built sets. It will eventually, you'll be able to import your own sets. It's a pretty nifty interface. Um, you know, the guy doing the demo was like sitting with a keyboard in his lap and he was like changing the out of focusness of the background. And he was changing all sorts of other things, just using the computer keyboard. It didn't require anything that special. Now, the big limitation. What What's like the resolution and like what's the, because, you know, we were just talking about cameras and Ks and things like that. What's interesting about it, I, it's only 4K res, but what's interesting about it is that doesn't actually matter that much because like usually it's a little bit out of focus in the background anyway. Like unless you're on a really wide lens with a really big depth of field, the background plate is often a little soft. So you can usually get away with a little bit of a lower resolution. The flip side of this is that they don't include the TV monitor with it. And uh, so you have to buy your own TV. And so this product is really targeted at people who are like home broadcasters, popular streamers who want to have cool stuff in the background because the biggest home TVs are really going to top out in the affordable category around 85 inches. And we're not going to get to this, you know, you need volume to bring price down and you're never going to have 20 foot by 20 foot screens become affordable because you're never going to have a huge volume. Like nobody needs 20 foot by 20 foot screens in their house. It's just too big. Home screens will top out at like 90 to 120 inches. Eventually there'll be enough of volume there that you'll be able to get one. And so right now this particular setup is probably more limited to close-ups and insert shots. But what was interesting to me about it is it seems like first off, I think about all these times in my career where like I bought the affordable indie thing or I hacked it together or like four friends of mine and I like went in on a 3D rig or whatever, just to learn the technology and get good at it. And then have those skills that then were made us employable on the bigger shows. So I think it's interesting that we're seeing this here. They also, AR will have a, they're not calling it the Meditanium, although they can use the name if they want. They have a, um, a setup in their Burbank facility where they've been working with some filmmakers. They did a short film, a star Wars short on a 20 foot by 20 foot screen. looks pretty impressive. I think they might need a little bit of a bigger screen for some of the shots they might want to do, but you know, that's now out there. And I think that using this technology, probably licensing it from AR wall, you're going to start to see some studios pop up where for a hundred thousand dollar investment, not a hundred million dollar investment, you're looking at something where you can do some of this. And I actually think the home version might be interesting. The thing that first occurred to me was like inserts and pickups. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on shoots where halfway through post, we're like, Oh, we need to rewrite these three lines. And then we either like, we build a set where we can do a close up on this actor where the background set looks the same, or we drive all the way out to the original set to get that one line picked up and it's like oh if i'd done even if i'd done a big job on like one of those hundred million dollar sets where i have to pay a million a week to rent it or whatever the ability to have a setup like this in the post house and be like oh i need to pick up this line or like i need to do an insert of this gun or whatever and i just do it and i'm using the same model that i used on set and it just matches perfectly and i just cut it right in and we just keep moving like I think it's a really interesting option for a post house, actually, if you're a post house that's working on a lot of these projects. The thing that also excites me about this is one thing I've learned from the No Film School community is that people find, kind of like what you said, Charles, interesting ways to hack things or maximize their potential or use them in creative ways. And I could totally see somebody using a tool like this to help them build a feature because maybe all their close-ups happen on this, but they render the rest of the world somehow, or they shoot miniatures, or they shoot plates, or they green screen the full body into the setting. But this could be a tool that helps you create I mean, we've, we've done stories on a number of like, I created my own epic sci-fi fantasy and here's how, and people get creative about how they do that. But this will be one more truly badass tool that you can use to do something like that and like take it up a notch. And I can't wait with something like this. All I can think is, is I can't wait for the really creative, motivated person to like turn it into a, a great storytelling device and not use it in an obvious way. Charles, did they say what the minimum requirements are to run something like this? So th they sell hardware and software together. So okay. it is a $9,500 box it, it, that is customized to run their software runs, nothing else. You're not going to check email with it. The only thing that they don't include in the setup is the TV. Um, yeah. And I, I, I honestly think that people will hack it and find interesting ways. I also think that like, 
you're going to see some like small businesses set up like cool stages in their communities. Like someone in St. Louis with a warehouse is going to figure out how to use this with a projector and you're going to be able to do full screen, full body shots with it and stuff like people will figure it out. And I think that's cool. And I'm excited that it's coming out at this budget level. I'm really excited about this for education in terms of filming projects and the flexibility that it offers in case you can't go to a set or a place that is exactly what you want in the radius of where you're at. There's a little bit more room there and leverage there to to shoot, to, to play, to create a new world entirely and to get your actors in there without necessarily having a green screen and to do all the work in post. So that's exciting. And at that price point, I bet there are some institutions who would invest in it for sure. Up next, can you guys all repeat back to me the five words? <laughs> Carrie? No, no, you failed. Jaws? Didn't you say the Jaws? Yeah, but it, you got to do them in order. Oh, I can edit it together so that I pretend that I said them in order. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Cut it together. You're right. You're totally <laughs> um, guys, we have a fun segment here that we're going to wrap on. Um, this is the kind of thing that the No Film School community always loves, and it's fun. That's why uh, we posted a story up on the site. It's going crazy around the internets because people love this stuff. The 11 best movies of all time, according to Quentin Tarantino. Um, we write a lot about the things Quentin Tarantino thinks about movies. Luckily, he's a great filmmaker who has a lot of thoughts about movies. So he's, you know, he's kind of like our patron saint in a weird way or one of them. But uh, this is a list, a handwritten list that we reposted and wrote about. And in an era when I think people are looking for stuff to watch that they've maybe never seen before. And it comes with a recommendation from QT himself. This is a fun thing. So I'll read off the list and then we can talk about them. Um, it's so funny because it's on this little piece of paper. It's a form and it says name blank Quentin Tarantino written, handwritten occupation left blank. Uh, my greatest movies are one, the good, the bad and the ugly Two: Rio Bravo three blowout Four: taxi driver. There's a special note here too. two through four. He circled and said, these are interchangeable. Uh, five, his girl Friday. Six, Five Fingers of Death slash King Boxer. Seven, Pandora's Box. Eight, Carrie. Nine, Unfaithfully Yours. Ten, Five Graves to Cairo. And he added 11 handwritten at the bottom, Jaws. So in so many ways, this is very Tarantino-esque. It's like it's handwritten and it's got all these weird little footnotes and rules he created himself and obviously broke on purpose because that's who he is. In Quentin Tarantino fashion, I was kind of trying to think about how many movies he said he's doing, and then there's going to be an addendum, right? There's going to be an added one based on the 11 that you just added. <laughs> no, everything with him is always like asterisk plus footnote. Like he loves the he loves writing in the margins, and he literally did that on this. But all his movies are like there. His movies are almost like notes on movies in and of themselves. Like that's his whole conceit, and it's fun for that reason. And you know, he's always talking about stealing, and that's that's what great artists steal, etc. Um, I'll just say, you know, as a cinephile and an old movie fan, I really like that this list he made includes a lot of different kinds of movies from different eras, made by different filmmakers, obviously, but representing different genres, uh, comedy, action, drama, Western, horror, uh, rom-com. Um, there's just a lot going on here and some that are like kind of there's a war movie there's some fun mix some of these are fun genre mixers um and i think that that's kind of i don't agree they're not my 11 favorite movies but um if there's one that i kind of single out as being like a really interesting uh quentin tarantino pick that i'm kind of like huh yeah you know what i think i should watch that again because it's been a while is five graves to cairo which is a billy wilder movie i think the world of billy wilder he, I think, is like one of the greatest filmmakers of all time because he was a writer, director, producer, and just like an absolute genius who his movies across every genre are amazing. But Five Grades to Cairo is not like one of his headliners. It's not The Apartment or Some Like It Hot or uh, Sunset Boulevard or Double Indemnity. It's like, and that's another fun Quentin Tarantino thing is that he'll find that nugget in the corner and be like, 
this is my favorite Billy Wilder movie. And sometimes you feel like he's kind of fucking with you a little bit because it's like really that one, like not the obvious ones, of course, but that, that one just jumps out, out to me. I have to say the Billy Wilder one was the weirdest one for me as well. <laughs> you just said it was the weirdest one, right? I just I was said like, it jumps uh, out to me as one that I'm like, huh, I guess I want to rewatch that now and think about it. I have seen it. I've never, I've never seen it or honestly, and I consider myself a Billy Wilder fan. Like he's one of my favorites. Hadn't even heard of it. Yeah, it's weird. Like, <laughs> I don't know how I missed it. I've definitely watched a, a wide variety of Billy Wilder fans uh, films, some of which are not as good as others. Totally. Um, one of the things I love so much about Billy Wilder is how diverse. There's very few filmmakers that have done such amazing dramas and such amazing comedies. It's a short list of filmmakers who have like got that kind of breadth. Billy Wilder is like truly phenomenal in so many ways. And somehow I never heard of Five Grades to Cairo. Just never it's, heard of it. It's a weird movie. It's like a war movie rom com, and it, and and Rommel, the Nazi general, is like a main character. It's just strange. It's not. Uh, it's off the beaten path of his uh, look. Even like Ace in the Hole is off the beaten path for Billy Wilder, and it's I think also a great movie. But people don't always talk about it. So I do think this is a really like weird specific thing. And I think there's a reason Quentin Tarantino picked it and I'm fascinated by that. But um, I mean, I think we all know good, bad and the ugly is like one of his big influences. It's all over everything he's ever done. Um, Also, so are are blowout taxi driver and, you know, Carrie, like those are just such clear influences on him. Um, Five fingers of death is a clear, you can see on this list, a lot of his movies, I guess. Um, you know what else is interesting to me about this? I like Tarantino movies. There are a couple Tarantino movies I like more than I like any of these movies. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. So there's Which like, one? there's a certain, I mean, uh, let me bring the list back up. I mean, for me, once upon a time in Hollywood and Jackie Brown are as good as like, like I've never been the world's biggest Sergio Leone fan. And the performance is, Brian De Palma likes something in performances that's different than what I like. Yeah. Like, I recognize objectively that like he gets interesting performances from people, but it's just not my taste. And like, he's obviously a great cinema stylist with an appreciation of history, but like the performance issue is always too much for me. So like, you know, all of the De Palma movies, I'm like, there's better acting in all of your movies, Tarantino. Hey, um, I wonder Charles on that point. I wonder if he intentionally I mean, I don't think he would have, but maybe he made a list of movies that are not as good as some of his, because you could definitely make a list of 11 movies that are better than like, I don't want to say anything is objectively better than anything in this, but like, I think a lot of people would consensus agree that there's like 10 movies that are better than any Quentin Tarantino movies, but it's hard to maybe Pulp Fiction always gets on there, but like, maybe he went out of his way to be like, these are great movies that don't eclipse me. I don't know. I mean, her, his Girl Friday is a great movie. I guess for me, His Girl Friday is a great movie. I guess for me is I was thinking like, it's just interesting the way influence work. Like these are the movies Tarantino would say are the most influential on him. And yet while I see the influence, sometimes I like more what he did with the influence than what the original person did with the same thing. Very cool. Very cool point. So like, it's just interesting to think about the way chains of, you know, and that happens all the times. Like you read, I, I went through a thing where I like anytime an author I liked recommended somebody, I would try and track down the book and read it. And so many times I'd be like, Oh no, I like your book so much more than your favorite author's books. Um, <laughs> I mean, it read me to reading some interesting things, but like it definitely, it's just funny to think about the way that works. I think what I like the most about this list is the fact that it's got that handwritten thing and here's why. <laughs> because it feels like you just you said something, George, you said about that it was like it, it feels like an invitation to go off of the beaten path a little. And even though that there's Carrie and Jaws and some and Good Bad the Ugly, there's like distinct points or distinct movies in that list. Like there's also some that meander off the path and the very nature of the work is did we expect a handwritten list with a person with no (laughs) occupation like no maybe not or maybe i expected a podcast where he would jump into each one like this is not what maybe we expected i think that's the whole point right (laughs) it's like go find your own you know go find your own list and 
go off the beaten path on your own kind I think, of journey. I like that. I like that a lot because I think that the word I the word that comes to mind when you describe all of that and I look at it again is it's very playful. And it feels like an invitation to play in the sense of like handwrite your list on this form, but don't be bound to this to the to the color outside the lines a little bit because that's what I did. And like he he exactly. it's it's his name, it's his list, and it's his rules, kind of within us within these loose boundaries. And I think it's kind of fun. I mean, God, we're really diving deep on like this little <laughs> thing here, but um, but that's what podcasts are for, right? But that's what we do about every I feel like that's like people do with everything that he puts out though it's just like everyone's gonna dive in like what does this mean this that's what he next? and that's what he does that's his exactly. that's part of his per, that's what he invites and that's what his whole narrative or narrative creation process is and i um i agree charles i love that i love when the thing evolves to the point where you look at the old things and be like oh they started doing it so much better or so and so started taking it to new places that the original place couldn't um that's just always a cool thing to see. Remakes and re-envisioning, re are not always bad. Um, and, and influences and homages can create really cool new content and thoughts. I think that's a good wrap up. So now can we all remember the five words in order? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Jaws. No, Carrie, then Good, Jaws. bad, ugly. Good, bad. Carrie Jaws. Good, bad, ugly. Carrie Jaws. Yes. There we go. That has been another week of the No Film School podcast. Uh, uh, you can find me on the Instagram, on the Twitter, at Charles Haynes, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E. And check out my web series, Salty Pirate, at saltypirate.tv. It's on Amazon. It's on Ficto. It's on Vimeo. Uh, saltypirate.tv. This is Michelle De La Torre. You can get in touch with me if you'd like to talk about the Emmys. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. The awards are part of the greater sphere of this crazy thing that we're all involved in. So kudos to anyone who's touched any sort of creative endeavor in the last year. It is one piece of a larger puzzle. So thank you. And we'll see you next week. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And uh, thanks for listening. We have a lot of cool stuff, as always, happening on nofilmschool.com. Uh, check out the site. Tons of information on the Sony A7S III, as we discussed today, and also some camera tests and reviews coming of that camera and the Canon EOS R5. We are just in like heavy camera season right now. Um, so check it all out. Check out a podcast coming soon, an interview I did with the hosts of the Just Shoot It podcast. If you haven't listened to that one, it's another great podcast about filmmaking. They are two working directors and their insights and process is fascinating. So we'll have that up soon. Make sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing and what we're doing wrong, etc. And ask us questions. Editor at nofilmschool.com or ask at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much, everybody.